Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to thank and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hi everyone and welcome to On The House, the Household Management Science Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Gabriella Yastra, coming to you from NAM, Melbourne, Australia. Let's begin. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. Today we're going to be talking about the science and chemistry of cooking with Professor Chris Thompson, who is a professor and director of education at the Biomedicine Discovery Institute and professor in chemistry at Monash University. Hi, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me. Um, I'd love to get to know you a bit better before we do get started on our topic today. So do you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, so Chris Thompson, as you introduced me, I'm at Monash University. Um, I've had a bit of a strange trajectory. So I did work in the School of Chemistry for 15 years, but I really wanted a bit of a sea change. And a couple of years ago, I moved to what's called biomedical science, where they mm -hmm. still teach a little bit of chemistry, but it's more about where all of those different sciences come together mm. for our health sector, so that the science that underpins. So I work there now as the Director of Education. So it's... Um, you know, we teach into everything like nursing, physiotherapy, occupational therapy, as well as good old nuts and bolts science. Uh-huh. Um, I always think, I think we always think of like, you know, biomedicine and medicine is quite separate from, you know, things like chemistry. But I guess really everything is very much connected, which is actually what we're going to be talking about today, which is how chemistry does interact with our, um, with us and our own lives. Um so that's so interesting that, yeah, you did start in one area, but move into something that's more connected. Yeah, I think a lot of chemistry academics, professors and so on, they're very much about their research. Mm -hmm. So they'll choose a very, very particular field and then they specialise and become world experts in that field. In my case, I enjoyed my research, uh, which was originally, you know, very much laboratory based research, but probably about 15 years ago, I really you know, tune my attention to education, so mm -hmm. science education. Uh, and then that's where I've come to specialise in the last 15 years. So I guess my interest has become much broader than just chemistry. And I guess also using or using, you know, your education interest or your interest in education to teach chemistry. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And just science communication mm -hmm. in general, it's, it's one of those areas that is genuinely really challenging to communicate science to the to the public. Um, there's often a sort of a perceived barrier. So if you can try and break that barrier down by, you know, finding ways to communicate to audiences other than just other scientists, um, that's it's something that we, we're constantly trying to get better at. Mm -hmm. um, so I studied journalism and I think the thing that gets laughed at a lot is when, you know, people take scientific findings and they try to say it you know, report it as news and they just come up with these completely incorrect ways of reporting the news. Um, yep. And so I think that, you know, for journalists and for the public to, to really understand what the scientists are trying to say, they need more education just in general in science. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what people would find is scientists love talking about scientists. So it doesn't matter who it is, whether it's journalists, or teachers, 
doesn't matter what profession, mm-hmm. uh, people should feel like they can just reach out to scientists and say, look, I, you know, I read about this thing. I don't quite understand it. Can you help explain it to me so that we can, you know, um, you know, communicate this stuff in a way that makes sense to everyone? Yeah, I think something that I've noticed is um, a lot of the academics I have um, interviewed, they're really open to just people sending them an email to ask them questions, which... Um, I would have imagined would be like a no-go, like mm-hmm. they must get so annoyed with all the questions. So it's really great to hear that that, um, that everyone is so open to, to answering these questions. Yeah, 100% open door mm. policy for, for almost all, all academics. Great, thank you. Um, and so we're going to be doing that today. We're gonna, I'm going to be asking you um, 101 questions about chemistry and cooking. But first, I'd like to get to know you a bit better with a section we call Have You Met Chris? Um, so the first thing I'd like to know is what is your favourite book? Okay, so my favourite book is a book called The Outsider uh, by Albert Camus. Um, so Albert, as we would say it in English, but Albert, he was French. Um, mm-hmm. And he he actually grew up in in Algeria. Mm-hmm. Yep, so which was a French colony at mm-hmm. the time, um, but in, the, in northern Africa. So, yes, it's a really fascinating story. Do you want to hear about it? Yeah, Very tell briefly. me a bit about it. Oh, super briefly. Um, so he... Um, he was a French existentialist. So the book was written uh, in the 30s, 40s, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, But, yeah, it's, the, it's, it's this story about a French man in Algeria uh, and, you know, he shoots, he shoots this guy on the beach and he promptly gets arrested and he, he sort of delves into this existential crisis. Mm. Um, it's actually a pretty short book. I think it's only like 120 pages. Um but that was a time when, you know, Albert Camus, Jean-Paul Sartre, Simone de Beauvoir, you know, this existential movement. Um, and there were things like, um, you know, the occupation of France during the Second World War and all those sorts of things. Um, all, all of those authors are absolutely fascinating. But but The Outsider is just one that's always touched me in a particular way for whatever reason. I think I read one of his books. I think it was about a plague. Yes also set in Algeria yes. and um yeah really really moving and mm. it's and that's also analogous with the French yeah. um, occupation mm. the German occupation of France or whatever yeah yes he's one of those authors that um, I I <clears throat> did enjoy the book but I also didn't quite understand it so it's sort of my list I, I want to read more of his books but I'm also a little bit intimidated yeah <laughs> well now I know where to start though yep perfect um and have you enjoyed any movies recently look I I don't really watch movies. I know that sounds a bit strange. I, I, I really like series and mm-hmm. um, I, I, I genuinely struggled to come up with one movie to mention. So mm. instead, I'm just going to mention that I recently finished watching Star Trek Picard, which um, I think there's three seasons and it picks up from the Star Trek Next Generation. So I don't know if you're a Trekkie. I'm sure some of your listeners will be. I'm sure. Um, but it was really, really good. Mm-hmm. So any Trekkies out there, if they haven't watched Picard yet, I should get onto it. Can you tell us a little, like, I mean, it probably links all together with the entire Star Trek universe, but can you tell us just a little bit about what this series is about? Yeah, oh, well, so the original series, there were seven seasons and mm-hmm. Picard was the captain of yeah. the starship. So through the, all seven series, it basically picks up his life, you know, 30 years later. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, he's, you know, he's an old man now. Mm-hmm. But he's still in his heart. He's really still a starship captain. So even though he's sort of moved on from being a starship captain, some stuff happens, and he's like, 
I need to go and fix this problem. I'm going to steal a starship and, you know, go and be the person I used to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and slowly but surely they actually rope in all of the old characters from the original series. Um, so for anyone who was into it, it's highly nostalgic. But more importantly, that that series, like it's just about humanity. It's mm-hmm. just like they're always tackling ethical questions and they're intrinsically all good people. Um Dealing with lots of bad guys, of course, and and so they, you know, that whole series is always about an ethical conundrum and how they sort of navigate their way through it. Would you say for for someone like me who hasn't watched the original series, would you recommend starting there, or do I have to watch the original seven series first? So the um, yeah, that's a good question. I, I think either or. Okay. If you felt like you didn't have seven seasons and then another three in you, I think you could just pick up from Picard. There might just be a couple of references that you don't know about, but mm-hmm. I think you'd be fine. Because I have, I have, I've been intimidated by the Star Trek um, series because there's so many of them. Um, like I'm interested in watching them, but do I want to start with the old ones and have to work my way through? It's a bit like watching Doctor Who from the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. And the very original Doctor Who, like that was a long time ago. Yeah. The special effects were not particularly special, Yeah, which is sort of true for the original Star Trek as mm-hmm. well. So that's a bit, I'm not a big fan of the original Star Trek, you know, because it was just a bit too early for me. We'll go mm-hmm. with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm um, glad to hear that you can start from, from the new series because um, maybe it's a good way to start. And then after you've had a taste, you can go back. Yep. Yep. Um, and do you listen to any podcasts? Yeah, I, I do. So um, completely unrelated to today's topic. Uh-huh. Um, during, um, I'm trying to think when it was, it was like 2019, 2020, I just started listening to uh, a lot of podcasts about American politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, this is the Trump era when he was president. So, you know, there's some pretty interesting things going on. I'm not going to, you know sway to any particular side of politics in my uh, in my analysis here. But, I mean, there's so many po- politics podcasts for, for American politics. Mm. But there's a lot of conspiracy theories in American society as well that have, have been really feeding into American political narratives, things like the QAnon movement and, and all these sorts of things. So, so there's a podcast called QAnon Anonymous mm-hmm. and they kind of basically just process some of the crazy stuff that happens in the conspiratorial world of of the United States. And there's another one which is actually just called Conspirituality. Mm -hmm. And so it's where conspiracy theories intersect with spirituality Mm -hmm. uh, of all different sorts. And these guys just sort of break down all sorts of different uh, cults and subcultures and those sorts of things. It's very U.S., Focus. So for me, I think it's kind of a bit of escapism. Yeah. <laughs> Australia politics, not that bad. <laughs> Look at America. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I do love um, like a conspiracy theory. Like I always sort of scoff at them. Oh, who can believe in them? But it is fun to like hear about the crazy things that people believe. 100%. Yeah. Um, and do you have a role model? Yeah, it's simple. It's my mother. Mm-hmm. You know, so my mother was... Um, she was a teacher. Um, she went on to become a, a principal, so primary school. Um, so obviously I'm passionate about education, so I think it's in the genes. But I think it, it's more about what I learned from her in terms of not just being a teacher but going on and being a principal. 
So you're you're a leader, right? Mm-hmm. In a in a complex organization. In this case, it's focused on education, but you know, it's so much more than education. You're dealing with colleagues, you're dealing with parents, you're dealing with school kids. Um, just watching her navigate some of talking about ethical conundrums, watching her navigate some of those ethical conundrums. And um, she has this one saying, and it's, you can't keep all the people happy all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, at, it's so simple, but it's just, it's become, for me, that's become like a catchphrase for which I live my life. So mm-hmm. in my current role, Director of Education, there's lots of stuff we're often tackling, lack of resources, changing policy from the university and so on. A lot of people get upset. Um so my job is often about just navigating that path where we keep as many people happy as we possibly can within the framework that we exist. Mm. Uh, but I learned that from my mum. Mm. Yeah, mums are so important because, um, I mean, who shapes you from, from you know, the youngest aspect of your life? And uh, sounds like she was a really great role model, very relevant to who you are now as well. Yeah. Mm. Um, and have you done any courses that have inspired you? This is going to sound really bad. I haven't done a course in a while. I've done a few leadership courses at at Monash, and again, they were sort of useful for navigating like complex organisational structures. But when I was thinking about a course, which might be interesting for our conversation, mm-hmm. um, uh, I was actually thinking of another podcast. So it's not technically a course, but it effectively is. It's called the Golden Age of Islam. Mm-hmm. And I'm not personally religious of any persuasion myself, but I'm a scientist. I've never really studied a lot of history, mm-hmm. so I've actually found my in, my my entry into historical stuff has been through podcasts. Mm-hmm. And I really didn't know anything about um, Islam and its history and how it spread geographically over different centuries and so on. So yeah, I've been finding that really fascinating. Uh-huh. And how you said that it it's sort of related to our topic today. How is it related? Oh no, it's, it's not Oh, it's not, not related. Yeah, no, oh, not sorry. related. Completely separate. Yeah. Completely separate. <laughs> yep. That's okay. I think that um I I do love it when our guests have like a broad range of different interests. Um and it also gives me lots of recommendations. Cool. Yeah. Um, so thank you for sharing those with us. Um, now, I like to start our interviews by with a few definitions, just so we know what we're starting off with. Um, so how do you define household management? Household management. Uh, yes, I was thinking about this and how I'd sort of concisely break that down. But but it, it, it's processes which, um, which save time. You know, like time is one of those things, like we all suffer from not enough time in our lives. There's not enough hours in the day yeah. and, and those sorts of things. So processes that make things more efficient. Um, there's also processes that make things cheaper. Yep. yep. So where, where we can save money. Um, so, I mean, today, you know, we're talking about chemistry and cooking. So if I was to choose a completely different example, because we're going to talk a lot about chemistry and cooking, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, like energy usage, so your cost of living crisis in, in, in Australia and I think the rest of the world at the moment, mm-hmm. um, people are trying to save every penny that they can. You can actually save a lot of money on your electricity bill if you understand how electricity works. So we're thinking about household managed with respect to electricity. So most households, they pay peak or off-peak prices mm-hmm. for their electricity. But if you ask most people, they say, well, when's peak and when's off-peak? They don't actually know. Do you know? No. And I did look at my electricity plan to try and figure out when it was. And I don't think I pay a 
peak and off peak. Some people don't. Yeah. yeah. And I'm not sure what's better. It kind of depends when you use the electricity. Yeah. But for a lot of people who, who are on those peak and off peak plans, they couldn't tell you when, when the peak is. So for me, it's between 3 and 9 p.m. Mm-hmm. So you'd normally think, oh, peak is maybe during business hours. Well, it's not at all. Like peak doesn't kick in till, till 3 o'clock. Mm-hmm. So there's some really simple things like you wouldn't do you put your dishwasher on after or between 3 and 9, you wouldn't wash your clothes, you wouldn't um, just any of those really electricity-intensive processes like a clothes dryer. Um, now, obviously, there are some things you have to do between 3 and 9, mm-hmm. But even maybe having a, a shower, if you're either a morning person or an evening person, if you're really an evening person and you have electric hot water, it's going to be cheaper after nine o'clock. Hmm. Yeah. So, but this simple thing could actually go close to halving your electricity bill just by embracing those sort of practices. So, um, so that was just an example that mm-hmm. sort of occurred to me. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, I'm going to have to have another look at my electricity plan, see if I do have a peak and off peak. Um we don't have a washing machine, like a dishwasher. So you know what? Saving money there. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, definitely like washing clothes and things. Um, yeah. I'll have to have a look and see when when we're doing that. You could you could save 500 bucks a year just, wow. by, just by timing when you do stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be interesting to like, you know, calculate it all. Mm. Um, so we're going to be talking about cooking today. So what, like, how does science affect and how does chemistry affect cooking? Because, you know, I sort of see cooking as this thing that we do in the home and it's, you know, flavor and art and um, all of these concepts, but I, I, I'm not quite sure how it, how it relates to chemistry. It's all chemistry. Cooking mm-hmm. is just a chemical experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, acknowledging many of your listeners won't uh, maybe know nothing about chemistry or know bits and pieces about chemistry. Um I'll just start from a really basic description of what what chemistry is. Yes. Everything is made of atoms and molecules. Mm -hmm. Absolutely everything. Mm -hmm. Um, The table, the microphone, the water I'm drinking over here, even the air, the atoms and molecules. Mm -hmm. Um, So the food that we eat, the things that we drink, um, the saucepans and the pans that we use in the kitchen, they're all made of atoms and molecules. And chemistry is just taking those atoms and molecules, which are like bits of Lego, mm-hmm. that can click together in different ways. Um, and in the kitchen, we get food as our ingredients and we do stuff to it and it transforms from something to something else or a, modif- or a variation of what you started with mm-hmm. because it might improve the flavour or the texture or mm-hmm. the smell or hopefully all of those things. Yep. Or, or sometimes make it worse. <laughs> Yes, I'm sure we all have that experience from time to time. Mm. Um, so possible po- possible um, detour, but I mean, we, I've, I've heard, you know, people, oh, I don't want chemicals in my food. I don't want, um, or I, I work in a pharmacy as well. You know, I want the natural path, not the chemical path. Uh, can you, but you're saying that water is chemicals. Um, so yeah. is there a difference in the chemicals? Yeah, so everything is a chemical. Mm-hmm. Um, we just have um, toxic chemicals and mm-hmm. non-toxic chemicals. And actually, every chemical is toxic by definition. So, for example, I know the water was supposed to be out of shot, but um, this is a toxic chemical. If you have more than 70 grams of this per kilogram of body mass and you consume that, you'll die. Yep. 
that's a lot of water, actually. You'd probably have to drink, I don't know, 10 litres of water, but it could kill you. Mm. Um, so everything has the capacity to be uh, a toxic chemical. Obviously, some things, we're talking like nanograms or milligrams of a material could mm-hmm. kill you. So um, everything is chemical. Mm-hmm. We just have um, varying degrees of of, um, of of levels of toxicity, if, okay. you, if you like. Um, but... Yeah, I, I, I'm not going to get on my high horse about this, but sometimes I see labels of products and they say, oh, this is chemical free or don't have this one. That one's got chemicals in it. This is chemical free. We all know what people mean by that. It's chemical free. It's been derived from natural products directly. But you know what? Those natural products have still been through different sort of levels of processing. So it's important to have, a, I think, a slightly more sophisticated understanding of what what chemical free mm-hmm. means when people use that term. Okay, sure. But today we're just going to talk about, I guess, probably more natural food in quotation marks and how, you know, cooking affects all these different chemicals. That's correct? Yep. Great. So um, you have explained this a little bit, but why why do we need to know this? Um, like, you know, I'm still going to cook an egg when I go home. Um, I don't need to know why it goes from this like clear gloopy liquid to a white solid liquid. It's not going to change my cooking, is it? Uh, look, first of all, it, perhaps it even depends how passionate you are about cooking, mm-hmm. really understanding, okay, so I did X and Y and I ended up with Z. Mm-hmm. Why did I end up with Z? So some people really want that deep understanding. For some people, cooking is a chore. They don't even want to think about it. Get home. It's been a really long day at work. I've just got to get some food in front of me and my family. I don't want to think about the chemistry, you know. So uh, I think there is, to a degree, there are some levels of um, just your intrinsic motivation for wanting to know what's going on. But I would argue that if you understand the chemistry a little bit better, um, you're probably going to be better equipped for making food taste better, look better, have the right flavour. So, you know, for example, I'm not sure if you ever watched the Australian MasterChef show. No. Right. So it's a TV show. For those who haven't watched it, there's three judges, a whole bunch of contestants, and they come and cook stuff. And, of course, the judges come and, you know, walk up to someone's dish and they, they taste the dish. And one of those classic scenes is when the judge comes up and they taste the dish and they just look back at the contestant and they say, have you tasted this? And Because it's a competition, right? So they can't tell them what's wrong with it. And it might be it's not salty enough, it doesn't have enough seasoning or it hasn't, haven't had enough sugar or whatever it is. Um, but actually what they're detecting is a lack of a particular chemical. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, taste is a, is a nice way to sort of kick off our, our conversation about the chemistry. Mm-hmm. So what is taste? So hmm. probably most of us at primary school, we got taught, oh, yeah, the, the tongue has these different taste buds. Uh, there's the taste buds which detect salty, sweet, sour, bitter. So when I was a kid, there were only four. And then at some point people decided there was a fifth one, which is often called either umami or savoury. Mm-hmm. This all just comes back to particular molecules. So if something is not salty enough, that's kind of the very simple one, you haven't put enough salt in. Or the ingredients you're using don't naturally have enough salt, so you should add a little bit of salt. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, when that MasterChef judge comes up and tastes it, they taste it and they instantly know, 
this is not quite right. The balance is not quite right. I know from my experience that's because it doesn't have enough salt. Sometimes that can be really obvious. Sometimes it can be really subtle. Um, uh, again, you might need to add a little bit of sugar. Sour is an interesting one because there's a few different things you could add. A little bit of vinegar, a little bit of um, lemon juice, a little bit of tartaric acid. Depends on what you're cooking, right? Um, what are some of the other ones? Like Coca-Cola has got phosphoric acid in it. So acids tend to be what give things that sour um, taste. Bitters are a really interesting one because, you know, bitter, you normally think, well, bitter's not very good. Actually, small amounts of bitter molecules are really special. You know, mm -hmm. they, they impart really special flavours and so on. So understanding where bitter flavours might might come from. Um, you know, you know, coffee and chocolate have some bitterness associated with them. We attribute that to why we love coffee and chocolate. Well, some of us do. But coffee, of course, can be too bitter if it's not prepared the right way. Um, so, yeah, so understanding the, the, how you manipulate food using chemicals will help you get those flavours right. I mean, do you have any, like, rules for, like, you know, I don't know. So yesterday I made, um, or my partner and I made a vegetarian chili. And I, for me, every time I eat it, I always feel like there's something missing from it. Um, and so I always put a bit of sugar in it because um, I, the way that I was taught cooking, um, you put sugar in things to sort of mellow out some of that bitterness, the saltiness. And it tasted better to me, but... Um, Something's still missing. So, like, how can I kind of figure out what's the right balance? See, this is the chemistry now. So uh -huh. this is where the science kicks in. Mm -hmm. So it's experimentation. Okay. So when people think about science, they often think, oh, yeah, someone wearing a lab coat, goggles, experimenting, you know, mm -hmm. sort of doing weird things in a laboratory. Kitchen is just a laboratory, right? So um, if people don't feel like they're good cooks, mm -hmm. They should just experiment. They should just play with things. So I don't know what the answer is for your vegetarian chili, right? But um, I would keep playing with, um, maybe you've added sugar, but maybe you still haven't added enough sugar. Uh, maybe it's more salt than it needs. Maybe it's the umami. You know, mm. I mean, have you ever considered adding half a teaspoon of Vegemite? What a bizarre thing to no. do. But that could transform that that vegetarian chili, right? Um so are you vegetarian? No. Okay, right. So vegetarian is an interesting one of people who have plant-based diets and so on because meat, it does impart some very particular flavours uh, for a lot of people. They feel like they can't live without those flavours. So for plant-based foods, the uh, the flavouring and the spices become even more important and you can even simulate some of those flavours that you get get from things like meats and so on and dairy. <laughs> My um, main issue with the vegetarian chili is that I did actually make a uh, meat chili. We, my, in my household, we eat mostly vegetarian and some meat. I made a, veg uh, a meat chili and I was like, oh man, this is so tasty. And every time I make a vegetarian chili, I just think about the meat one that I made. Yeah. Look, I mean, some of these plant-based options are getting pretty good. So mm -hmm. there's lots of um, plant-based mints type products and so on. And again, as a chemist, you know, I look at these products and I think about them chemically. Mm -hmm. So, uh, for example, a lot of the vegetarian mints products that you can get, they're made from uh, from pea mm -hmm. protein. Chemically, 
are some differences, but actually they're pretty subtle differences. They've they've processed the pea protein, so it's starting to take on not just the flavours but the textures. Um, and yeah, the science of plant based proteins has come a long, long way. Because I do wonder sometimes. Um, we you know we buy the vegetarian burger patties, and I look at the ingredients list, and it's like processed soybean flour, and I'm like, is this just flour? Is this is this good for me? Is should I just eat um, like a meat patty and know that I'm getting protein and fat from this, and not this mysterious substance? I'm not quite sure what's in it. Yeah, I, I look. I think that that world. Mm -hmm. of developing alternate proteins has been highly experimental, particularly in the last five to 10 years. I've seen some strange products on the market. Um, I like them, so I keep eating them. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the the body has an amazing resilience for dealing with the chemicals that that you put into it. We know there are some chemicals you should never go anywhere near. Um, But, you know, the stomach is is an incredible... um, is an incredible organ and it knows how to deal with kind of most things you put in it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so don't worry too much about it. Don't worry too much. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so you've talked about taste um, and how that influence and how that is related to chemistry. What are some other um, sort of examples you have? Look, I have today, to have to today talk about one particular reaction, and I'll talk about others. Uh, so for listeners who don't know what I mean when I use the word reaction or chemical reaction, mm-hmm. it's quite simply when you bring some chemicals together and they interact with one another and um, new chemicals are formed. So that's a chemical reaction. How how do they occur? Um, usually if you just bring two chemicals together, mm-hmm. um in most cases, they don't react with one another. Mm-hmm. So you have to add some energy that might be in the form of usually heating, uh, but it could even be mechanical energy or light energy. Mm-hmm. So in the case of food, it's usually we heat stuff up, mm-hmm. we cook it, um, we boil it, we do things like that. But you're adding energy to get those two chemicals. Like I said, they're like Lego pieces. Mm-hmm. So it almost pulls the Lego pieces apart and then puts them together in a new way. Mm-hmm. And so... Something that my partner and I discovered recently is um, you make a much better vinaigrette if you don't just mix the vinegar and the oil, but if you actually whisk them together. Is that an uh, example of like a reaction um, from like um, movement energy, kinetic energy? In that case, that's more of a physical change. So let's start with that, actually. We'll talk about physical changes and chemical changes. Uh, It's all chemistry. Yeah. Yeah. a physical change is um, like the you know, simplest example is boiling water. Hmm. You start with liquid, you finish with a gas. Yes. Yeah, you start with water, you finish with steam. Um, that's a physical change. Uh, making a cup of tea is probably still a physical change. There's some yummy molecules in the tea leaves. By putting those tea leaves in very hot water, mm-hmm. you effectively pull those yummy molecules out of the tea leaves because you don't end up drinking the tea leaves, not if mm. they're strained properly. You just have the the liquid that's left over, which, of course, went from being clear to being golden brown colour because it's pulled those molecules out. But you haven't changed those molecules. Okay. They're the same molecules. Um, so, so, so they're physical changes. So that vinaigrette... Um, there were probably some things dissolved in the in the vinegar if it's like a good balsamic or something, and maybe some of it's infused across into the oil and and so on. Depends on you on your 
dressing okay. Okay. recipe. But they would be physical changes. Mm-hmm. So a chemical reaction is, yeah, you're, you're actually creating new chemicals. Okay. Mm. Mm. So let's go with a reaction, a very particular chemical reaction called, uh, okay, so it's spelt M-A-I-L-L-A-R-D. It's not pronounced mallard or mylard. It's a French term and it sound, my French is terrible, but it sounds more like Maillard, mm-hmm. um, but is possibly the most important chemical reaction in food cooking. Okay. So very simply, if you have sugars and you have proteins, so amino acids and, and proteins and so on, those two things can react with one another and the result is some of the most amazing flavours in terms of taste and smell that you could possibly want in food. Simple example, baking bread. Everyone knows that smell. You walk into someone's house and they've just been baking bread and it's like, that's, it's, it's, it's like sunshine. Mm-hmm. Yep. That smell is a result of this reaction between sugars and, uh, and amino acids. Okay. So, and most things have both sugars or might originally come in the form of starch. So if you're talking about bread, the flour has starch in it. It also has gluten in it. So wheat flour is about 10% protein. Uh, you bake it and these things start reacting with one another and they start forming new molecules. Um, it's, it's actually quite a complicated chemical reaction, so I won't go into it. All that matters is you start with these two molecules, you finish with a bunch of new molecules and they're amazing. Um, but as a cook and thinking about the chemistry how do I make sure my my reaction products are going to be the best? Temperature matters. Mm-hmm. Um, pH matters. In other words, how acidic or how alkali something is. Um, so, for example, the reaction works best between 150 and 170 Celsius. Really? So, yeah. You know when you get a recipe and it specifies a very particular temperature that the oven should be set at? It's always 180. So if at 180, the food itself won't get all the way to 180. Uh, so it's okay. often set a little bit higher mm-hmm. so that you get to 160 or 170, the actual product. Okay. Which is also why you eventually have to take it out of the oven because it will eventually get up to, to 180. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, and you think about sometimes it's like, oh, is it a fan forced oven? Because if it's a fan forced oven, it has to be 10 degrees lower because the heat transfer happens more effectively in a fan-forced oven. Mm-hmm. So it's 180, but if you've got a fan-force, do it at 170, for example. What about, um, like, the? so we're talking about bread. What about the baking, um, the thing you're baking on? So I've seen a bit of, you know, talk about, you know, silicon versus uh, metal. Mm-hmm. And then my dad also, for his Christmas cakes, he uses wooden boxes. Ooh, and right. I, I assume yeah. that that would affect how he transfers into the baked good. Yeah. I must say I've never cooked with a wooden well, box. That's cool. The only thing he uses it for is Christmas cakes, which he bakes long and slow. It's bakes for eight hours. Wow. What temperature? It'd be much lower, right? I think about 140, but yeah. I'm making that up. Well, yeah. If, if, if something's cooking for, for, the, for that long... The Maya reaction does actually kick off at 140. Okay. Yeah. So you that you probably would never cook anything lower than 140, but if you're doing it for eight hours, you can be as low as possible. And the benefit of cooking something at a lower temperature 
is you don't get some other chemical reactions happening, which you don't want. Mm -hmm. So, for example, burning or charring, that can kick in from, you know, sort of 175 onwards. Okay. And you end up getting these competing reactions. So what you're looking for is this sweet spot. Um, what's another great example of the Maya reaction? So onions, right? Mm. How many recipes start with put the onions in the fry pan first and fry the onions for two or three minutes before you add all the other ingredients? Mm-hmm. Onions have sugars in them, lots of fructose, as it happens, um, and and there's some amino acids in the onions. Again, for those who've watched MasterChef, they'd, they'd remember the judges saying, oh, you've got to caramelise those onions, you know. Um, actually, it's not completely caramelisation. So caramelisation is when sugars react with other sugars. Mm-hmm. The Maillard reaction is when sugars react with amino acids. And when you get that beautiful browning of your onions, predominantly from the Maillard reaction, um, okay. you actually get a bit of caramelisation and a bit of Maillard. Let's not get too into the details, but... Um, yeah, if you, if that fry pan's too hot, all you do is, is burn the onions, you know, you don't get these beautiful flavors. Um, I mentioned that pH, the, like mm-hmm. the acidity level is also important. So the Maillard reaction works better if it's, um, a little bit less acidic. So I'm not sure if you've ever tried this, but if you're sort of doing that fry of the onions before you add everything else, you can add a tiny bit of baking soda and it will speed up the Maillard reaction Ooh. and you really bring out those beautiful flavours that, you know, whatever you're cooking, a stir fry or a stew or whatever it is, then you add everything else but those flavours have been created. Interesting. I've never, I've never, I think I saw that once. What was I, I was making, I was making oven cooked um, chicken wings and it was like put a tablespoon of baking powder and I was like, what? what? Yeah. Why? Unexpected. Now you know. It's for the Maya reaction. Why. And yep. I was like, I mean, it tasted good. I could still taste the baking powder, to be honest. Yeah, you got to get it right. Yeah. Don't use too much. That sounds like it was much. a lot, but who knows? Yeah, it was seemed like a lot. Yeah, you don't need much. A little bit will just, we talk about pH in chemistry. So if something has a very low pH number, like one is something that's very, very acidic. Coca-Cola is like four or something like that. Something that is neither acidic or alkali has a pH of about seven. Mm-hmm. But if you add a bit of baking powder, you would probably bring the pH a bit above seven. Okay. Um, and that just promotes the Maillard reaction, happens more quickly, you get those beautiful flavours. Yeah. Okay. And I'm guessing if you were making something like caramelised onion, I might be wrong, but you wouldn't want to add like a vinegar in until much later in the process. That's exactly right. Because then you would disturb the whole process. It's never going to happen. 100%. Yeah. I don't know if you put vinegar in caramelized onions. I don't know. I, I know some people that like to put a bit of vermouth in, mm. if you know it, vermouth. It's like alcohol. I don't know yeah, much about it. I don't drink it myself. But yeah, yeah. But it, but it's the, not for the alcohol. It's for the flavor that comes mm-hmm. with the vermouth. Yeah. But you wouldn't add that from the beginning. Yeah. You would get your Maillard reaction and caramelization going for a couple of minutes and then you can add whatever you like. Yep. Okay. Um, so I've got a question. Um, when I'm cooking, what I was taught was, you know, when you make a gravy, you know, you've done a roast chicken, you've got the gravy, you add your flour in, um, you stir it around a bit, you add the water and you make gravy. But when you do Chinese cooking, it's a little bit different because, you know, you've got your stir fry, you get a bowl of cold water, you put the corn flour in, 
you stir it up and then you put it in. Why? We seem to be making the same product, which is like this, you know, um, gravy made of starch. Why are we using different products and why are we using different techniques? Yeah, look, I, I think the first part of the answer there is, is just cultural. So mm-hmm. in terms of what, what materials do we have access to historically? And that kind of feeds into that. So, um, uh, you know, he, historically probably didn't have a lot of wheat flour in China. Actually, in China today, wheat flour is used very routinely, you know, mm-hmm. so it's, but um, historically might have been more like rice flour and so on. Um, and I'm guessing I, it's the same for the gravy, um, which um, I got from my Dutch side. Yep. Um, not a lot of rice exactly. um, in the Netherlands. Exactly. So there's this sort of historical um, angle to that as well. But they do also have different chemical makeup. Mm-hmm. Uh, so wheat flour, I think I've got my facts correct here, uh, has a high protein content. Okay. So wheat flour, as I was saying earlier, I think it's you know it's close to, it can be anywhere from 10 to 16% protein. It's often what we call gluten. So people who are gluten in, intolerant, like they, they can't even handle even tiny amounts of the protein that is found in wheat flour. So that's what gluten is. Um, which is which is why um, they can handle stuff that's made from um, corn flour perfectly fine, because it's a completely different material. It does have some protein in it, but nowhere near as much. So corn flour is often regarded as, um, you know, or like a really good source of pure starch. It's not completely pure, but it's pretty close to pure starch. So there's this difference in that ratio between how much. Um, I haven't used this word yet, but carbohydrate. So carbohydrates, you know, sugars, starches, and so on, and and proteins. Yeah, so it's a different ratio. It's going to give you different kind of properties, like the cloudiness, for example, mm-hmm. in those okay. gravies. Okay, so mm. there are different types of starches, um, and they do different types of things. And I'm guessing you also have to treat them differently as well. Um, yeah, so, uh, so yes, starch is this... Uh, spectacular molecule. I absolutely love starch as a molecule. So first of all, it's a massive molecule. We talked about sugars a little bit. There are different sorts of sugars. You know, the the sugar that you sprinkle on your cornflakes or that you put in your coffee is what we call sucrose. Uh, Most people have probably heard of glucose. Maybe some people have heard of fructose. These are just different sorts of sugars. Ultimately, our body takes all these things we, we put um, in our mouths and, and process and turns it into glucose. Our bodies use glucose for energy. Starch is just a really, 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 really long molecule made of lots of glucose molecules stuck together. We call mm-hmm. it a polymer, but it's, it's just a chain, right? So going back to your question, where we get our starch from, there'll be slightly different structures of the starch, um, just biologically they might exist in slightly different forms and they'll have slightly different properties. Um, So whether it's rice, whether it's potatoes, whether it's wheat flour, corn flour, all pretty similar, just slightly different Mm -hmm. um, depending on what food sources they've come from. Okay. So um, what are some things, like what choices should we be making, I guess, Um, you know, like... um, because they are slightly different, but they're mostly the same. Like, can I just substitute if I'm making a cake? My fr- Let's say my friend is gluten intolerant. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm making a cake with flour and I'm like, okay, my friend can't have gluten. So I'm going to substitute with rice flour instead. Yep. Um, now you said that there's 
um, a lot of, or not, um, there's the protein gluten in flour, but it's not in rice flour or corn flour. So what's going to happen to my cake? Yeah, I think one of the reasons why wheat flour is so popular around the world is it has this really nice balance between the carbohydrate and the protein that's in it, which is, as you said, gluten. And gluten has some cool properties. Mm -hmm. So it has this elasticity. So once you start working with it um, in the form of of flour, it has some elastic properties. So when you bake, you know, when you're baking something, you want all this air to get captured, like you want your cake to rise. And that's because all this air has been captured in Mm -hmm. there. Gluten imparts properties, which which helps it it rise, um, and you know you got to do a few other things as well. Like most cooking has eggs, or you might use self raising flour to help the the raising and so on. Um, so if you went to rice flour, suddenly you don't have those uh, elasticity properties from the the protein that's in the rice flour. You're just not going to get as good a cake. You're not going to get that fluffiness necessarily. Um, um, I must admit, I'm I'm fine with gluten, so I've never even tried cooking a gluten-free <laughs> cake. But for those um, people who um, who who can't eat gluten-based breads, and they have things like spelt bread and so on, you've probably had these things yourself. Perhaps uh, they have different textures. Mm. They're often much um, kind of denser because they just don't rise in the same way. Yeah, yeah. There are ways around it, such as playing with the other ingredients, uh, the cooking temperature. Like you said, your father baked a cake which for eight hours. So you can get cakes to rise if you lower the temperature and just cook them for longer. Uh, but, yeah, there's some chemistry magic going mm. on there as well. I will say that the eight-hour cake, it's Christmas cake. It's incredibly dense. Um, right. Yeah, if you if you dropped it on someone, they would notice. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> it also lasts for a year, so. Wow. Okay. It's yeah. a special cake. It's a very special cake. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I can't eat it. <laughs> but look, you know, just finishing up on starch, I mean, starch is just a, a very special molecule. Mm-hmm. As I say, doesn't almost doesn't matter where you're from. Around the world, people almost all rely on starch as a part of their diet, whether it's rice, potatoes, pasta. Of course, in places like Australia, we eat all of these things because we're very lucky. We have access to just about any food we want. But there are many cultures in the world where they just have one of these things. Mm-hmm. It's the predominant carbohydrate that's available in their local diet and um, and that's where they get most of their um, carbohydrates from which as I said before actually turns into uh, glucose and that provides most of the energy that they need to get through the day mm-hmm. interesting um, yeah I feel very lucky that I do get to eat all of the different uh, carbohydrates or most of them mm. um, and also I get to cook with them because I think that um, I do like seeing the different things that you can make with them and the different ways that they um, taste and feel in the mouth. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, you, you know, this podcast is all about, you know, household management, you know. Yeah. So, you know, there are just those little things. Now, some people learn these things because they were handed down through through family members and so mm-hmm. on, but um, it's all chemistry at the end of the day. If we're talking about pasta, um, pasta sticking to itself, you know, at the bottom of the pot or sticking to each other, things like spaghetti and and, and so on. If you understand the chemistry, mm-hmm. the only reason that pasta is sticking to it itself is the starch on the outside of the pasta. Mm-hmm. In those first 30 seconds, it's in the hot water. You heat up the starch. It's enough to turn into glue. 
just for that brief moment, pastoral sticks together. Mm-hmm. All you got to do is stir it. Okay. You know, people do, oh, you got to add oil, you got to add salt. No, my grandmother told me you got to do this. You just got to stir it. Okay. That mechanical energy um, will stop it from sticking together. And within 60 seconds, you can stop stirring it. You can walk away and start chopping the vegetables because up beyond that, it probably won't stick either uh-huh. to the bottom of the pot or to itself. Oh, I always thought that you had to stir the entire, well, not the entire time, but when I cook pasta, I, you know, I put it in, let it get a little bit soft and then push the rest of it in if it's not fitting. And then I give it a stir and then five minutes later, I come and stir it again. And then five minutes later, I come and stir it again. Yeah, there's one pasta which really misbehaves. It, I love it, but um, it's the one that sticks, fettuccine, you know, because uh-huh. it's got those flat surfaces. Yeah. So you've got the perfect surface area for it to stick together. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Spirelli almost never sticks to itself, if you know what I mean, like mm. it's because of the shape. I guess, yeah, because then you'd have to have two pieces really interlock with each other to touch each other properly. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Mm. Um, I'm not sure if you, uh, this is something that you would know, but you know when you cook pasta and it boils over and it creates this big mess, so what's do you know what's causing that? Um, and, you know, people have the techniques where they say, put um, a wooden yeah. utensil over it or don't put a lid on it um, or do all these different things, you know. So what's causing that? Yeah, um, so that foam that you get um, above is, so it's called an emulsification um, and you can make emulsifications in all sorts of different ways. Um, and the reason why it's so diabolical in this particular case is because the water is boiling, so you're generating a lot of gas. The foam that you get on top is really, really good at capturing that gas. So it's effectively capturing gas in, in lots of bubbles and as you don't even need too much of this foam. It's just really good at capturing the bubbles and so it slowly sort of rises yeah. to the top. I think the wooden spoon, it just helps pop the bubbles. Okay. I think it's as simple as that. But, um, you know, I think we've all seen that on YouTube or hacks. and I've tried and so, it. It doesn't seem to work for me. Yep. I just take it off the heat and keep putting it back on again and then taking that's off what the I heat. Do. And, yeah. Yeah. That, yep, exactly. Um, but, yeah, that, that, that's an emulsification. I mean, uh, you know when you make uh, meringue? Mm-hmm. So you get the egg whites and uh, you add your sugar, usually bit by bit, uh, and then you, and you stir it and you get this amazing foam. Mm-hmm. It's just trapping gas. So the mechanical energy with the whisk is bringing air into it and it just gets trapped in little bubbles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is that why, uh, you know, if you make a cake and you have the eggs, uh, you whip the eggs separate, you have to be really careful with folding it in so you don't, I guess, crush the bubbles? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Um, what are some other, like, challenges that people have? You know, we mentioned, you know, the pasta sticking to each other. What are some other challenges and how can we solve them through chemistry? I mean... You know, if we just talk about meat, just mm-hmm. as an example, you know, some people struggle to get their meat just right. That was overcook it or they undercook it and yeah. so on. There's not necessarily a super simple answer to that. I mean, a lot of experimentation, a lot of trial and error, do your homework. You know, particular cuts of meat will cook at very particular temperatures, um, in very particular ways, Um sometimes in even very particular sorts of saucepans or, or frying pans. Huh. And it'll come down to, uh, so meat, for example, most meat, as we often call it, comes from skeletal muscle. It's mostly protein, a bit of fat, 
it's actually about 70% water. You know, our bodies are 70% yeah. water, right? So meat is pretty much the same. Um, but the way the protein molecules are all kind of folded together in different meats is completely different. Mm-hmm. You know, bacon's different to steak, is different to chicken. And so the way that you, you cook these things is going to be completely different. Do you need to understand the fine details of the chemistry to know how to cook different cuts of meat? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, but once again, sort of having that extra layer of a little bit of chemistry background, I think helps you understand why those different meats will cook mm-hmm. in different ways. Again, Maillard reaction, super important. Um, so, you know, if you're, if you're trying to brown the outside of the meat, um, if you just if you heat it up too much, you burn the meat. Mm-hmm. You know the burnt barbecue meat. That's it was just too hot. It's really as simple as that. Um, that might sound really obvious, but I think the trap that people fall into is, I'm really hungry. I've got to feed the family. I'll just turn it up a bit. That's me. Right. I do that. Yeah, because we're starving, right? Um, but actually, you, you're just going to end up with a uh, not as tasty product. Mm-hmm. You know. Because, for example, the Maillard reaction, you pushed it beyond that 170 degrees Celsius where it likes to operate. You pushed it to 175, 180. Suddenly you were burning rather than making these beautiful molecules that give us the beautiful flavour. And the other thing I find is you also end up then with raw insides and burnt outsides. Yeah. Because I guess my guess is the tr- heat hasn't travelled through into the centre y- enough yeah. yet. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Okay, so follow the instructions. Follow me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so do you have any tips on, you know, how to keep produce fresh for longer? Um, because, you know, I'm sure everyone's experienced this. Um, you buy an avocado maybe a day or two from being ripe and you have it in the fruit bowl and then all of a sudden it's brown Yeah. or you cut it open, it's perfect. And then the next day you go back and it's no longer edible. So do you have any tips there? Yeah. And avocados are expensive, right? So we don't want to waste our avocados. Yes. Um, so th- they're a really nice example. And this is also true for apples and bananas, which, you know, I know tend to last a little bit longer. Um, you know, but even bananas, you know, they can look perfect or you think they're slightly green. I'll buy them today. They'll be ripe tomorrow. Sometimes two days later, it's like, oh, brown already, you know. Um, so there's really interesting chemistry going on there. My mother always taught me, this is my mother again, woman of wisdom. Uh, you buy an avocado. It's not quite ripe. You put it in a brown paper bag. I don't think she knew what the chemistry was and she wasn't able to tell me what the chemistry was. It was years later I came to understand that as an avocado is ripening, it gives off a gas. The gas is called ethylene Mm -hmm. and that ethylene helps the avocado ripen. Mm -hmm. So if it's in a paper bag, it's trapped in there with that gas so it helps it ripen. Whereas if you'd left it just in the fruit bowl by itself or even worse, in the fridge where it's colder and it doesn't produce that gas as quickly, it might not ripen as uh-huh. quickly. Um, so, yeah, super simple example. Apples do the same thing. Bananas do the same thing. You can even put your apple, your banana and your avocado in the paper bag together uh-huh. and they'll help each other ripen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get to the point where, okay, so now it's ripe. I bought five of them because they're on special. I can't eat five today, but they're all ripe today. Um, just get your avocados put them in a plastic container, cover them in water, they'll stay in that perfect ripe state 
for weeks. Really? Like, like weeks. Yeah, because you have completely slowed down that process. There's there's no gas. Even if it, gas is being produced, it bubbles out oh. of the water so the avocado doesn't get exposed to that gas. Okay. And trust me, I've done this and my avocados lasted for weeks. And do you put it in the fridge? Yeah. Okay. Because, I don't know, the idea of having... I have seen it where people like, if you want to keep this vegetable for longer, put it in a bowl of water in the fridge or a box of water. And I kind of feel maybe it's just me, my misconception that if you put something in water, it's just going to go off faster or it's going to be like a breeding ground for bacteria or something. Yeah. And which would be true for some food products, but certainly vegetables, not at all. So, um, you know, it's a process called osmosis. It's just the way that water moves in and out of cells. Um, uh, that I mean, our, our celery, always keep it. We've got one of those nice flat uh, Tupperware containers and as soon as we get a celery, bring it home from the supermarket, we chop it up straight away and we just put the, the long bits of celery in one of those flat Tupperware containers, cover it in water, straight into the fridge. It stays, you know, you know, if you don't do that, your celery gets limp after yes. like five days. Celery, it will eventually go off and you might start seeing some brown bits on the end if you haven't eaten it quick enough, get rid of it then, but it will stay crispy. Um, so, yes, some food products, you know, particularly vegetables, will benefit from that. I mean, I want to try that. I want to get one, two avocados, mm-hmm. put one in the water, one, I guess, just out on the fruit bowl. Well, and I'll... look who's doing chemistry now. <laughs> I have to get myself a white coat. You will, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So um, this is like basic science, um, and these things are often handed down to us as as just family knowledge mm-hmm. from our parents, from our aunties and uncles and grandparents, and so on. And of course, there's chemistry behind it. Does everyone need to know the chemistry? Not necessarily, mm-hmm. but it can be really useful to know the chemistry because you might apply that to I don't know an avocado. And then you may never have been told the same thing. You could do the same thing with bananas. Mm-hmm. But if you apply scientific thinking, I'm going to try that with the banana. You would find that works perfectly well for the banana. Huh. And apples as well? Yes. Huh. Yeah. What about if you've cut them open? So there are molecules um, called, uh, what are they called? Phenols, polyphenols. And um, for as long as that flesh is inside of the skin of the fruit, those molecules are not exposed to air. Okay. As soon as they're exposed to air, specifically oxygen, the oxygen in the air reacts with those molecules and you get a chemical reaction and the product is brown. Uh-huh. All right. So it's not gonna it's not gonna hurt you. I mean, we've all eaten apple which has a bit of brown on it. It's perfectly fine. It's kind of off putting though, right? And it's yeah. the same with avocado, you know, you've you you only have the appetite for half the avocado on toast, mm-hmm. right? So you yep. put the other half back in the fridge. But you've probably seen some people say, sprinkle some lemon juice. Um, and that lemon juice will stop that oxidation reaction happening. The other thing is just get some um, clean film, glad wrap, and just cover the flesh of the avocado because then the oxygen is not oh. touching the avocado. Okay. So it doesn't go brown as quick. Hmm. Yeah. I have heard of like lemons with um, apples. Yeah, same but then thing. It tastes like le- lemon. Yeah, that's the yeah, that's the catch. Yeah. So when I have avocado on toast, I'm putting lemon juice on anyway. Oh, fair right? enough. It doesn't matter. Um, but yeah, so that's the catch. But the, but the acid 
um, in the lemon juice is what's stopping that chemical reaction take place, which gives rise to the browning. Okay. Hmm. I am going to go home and do some experimentation. Yeah. The, the other one which, you know, I, I wanted to share with you today is mm. just with onions because, again, it's one of those ones, chopping onions makes you cry. Um, have you ever noticed that sometimes it doesn't? Like some days you chop like three onions, it's like... That didn't, I didn't get teary at all. And then another time you like chop half an onion and it's like water pouring down your face. Um, basically, there are cells in the onions. And if you brutalize them too much, the cells release a chemical, actually um, converts uh, through an enzymatic process into a different chemical, which has got a bit of vapor. As soon as that vapor gets in your eyes, it makes you cry. Mm-hmm. So if you don't torture the onions quite as badly, and a way of doing that is by using a super sharp knife. Mm-hmm. So if you've got a blunt knife, you actually really um, uh, torture the cells. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's a really sharp knife, you're slicing through, you don't rupture the cells anywhere near as much. So you don't produce anywhere near as much of that chemical. Okay. And the other thing is if the onion um, has been in the fridge for half an hour before you chop it, the chemical reaction just happens more slowly. Okay. That's true for all chemical reactions. Yep. Mm. Colder something is, slower the chemical reaction. So if the onion was 20 degrees because you took it straight from the onion bowl or wherever you keep your onions, compared to an onion that came straight out of the fridge, super sharp knife, you'll probably never cry. Hmm. I have to give that a go because I, I have been known to cry because the person next to me is chopping onions. Right. Um, I don't even have to be the one doing it. Yep. Sharp knife, cold onion. Okay. Try it. Should we keep all of our onions in the fridge or just refrigerate one? Uh, yeah. My understanding is they keep better at room temperature. Okay. I'm trying to think what the chemistry is behind that. I'm sure there's some good chemistry. But, um, yeah, just pop it in the fridge. If you can think to yeah, half yeah. an hour before you're preparing the meal. Yep. Okay. My other tip is uh, use frozen onion. Frozen onion. And then don't even um, have to, to chop it or cry. Absolutely. <laughs> um, thank you. Uh, have you heard the one where you stick your tongue out when you're chopping the onion? The one where you stick your tongue out, the one where you put a piece of bread in your mouth, yeah, like the list goes on. And, you know, so, yeah. and that none of them work? There's no chemical reason why those things should work. Now, Mm -hmm. if people are trying these techniques and it works for them, I'm not going to argue with that. But being a scientist, I'm always thinking, there must be a reason why this works. And I'm not sure there's a good physical or scientific reason why that would work. I I tried the tongue thing and it just made my tongue spicy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I didn't do that again. Yeah. No, I'm pretty sure that one's not going to work. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Um, are there any other thing, you know, little tips or facts that you want to share with us? Um, we've, yeah, we've been through quite a few, haven't yeah, we? Yeah, we really have. Um, I mean, I really just want to share with people as well, you know, like cook, cooking's actually not hard. So in my household, I cook dinner every night. So for me, I absolutely love cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, I love putting food in front of my family. I know they love it when dinner is served every night. So there's that sense of satisfaction um, I think when I was younger, it was a bit more of a chore. Over time, you just get better at it. Um, 
And I think once you've really invested in some tips, which some of which is understanding the science, some of which is understanding the chemistry, uh, but more, more to the point, it's just experimentation and practice, which as I say, that is science, like experimentation and practice. That's what we do in science. If you're a chemist making stuff in a chemistry laboratory, it's lots of experimentation and practice. Um, then yeah, cooking can, can become a real love. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is, it, it doesn't have to be expensive. I think, um, again, cost of living, you know, crisis in this country at the moment, a lot of people doing it extremely tough. Um, I don't have enough money to cook good food. Sometimes a little bit more effort has to go into it, like so going to the markets to find really cheap fruit and veg, but it's often the freshest fruit and veg. But it might mean that you still have to go to Coles or Woolworths or Aldi or wherever you shop, um, and you've got to make that extra trip to the market. Or maybe half the veggies you want are on special at one supermarket and the other veggies you want are on special at the other supermarket. So it means going to both supermarkets to save 20 bucks. Mm -hmm. So there's that level of effort. But good food, um, it's, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't destroy your budget. You've just got to sniff it out. Yeah. Mm. I guess there's the the time and money aspects that you've kind of got a way up. Yeah. Um, and you can sort of, uh, I guess, disregard both and have a really terrible meal. But if you're, you know, um, being a bit picky or just thinking a little bit harder about it, you know, it's not too hard to make something good. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Great. Thank you. Um, and I'd love to know uh, what is a practice that you do in your own home to manage cooking in your home? So for a long time, I didn't do this. And when I started doing it, I was wondering, why wasn't I doing this the whole time? Because I would keep making the same mistakes. And it's as simple as this, using a timer. Uh huh. So if we're talking about pasta, for example, um, because I fool myself into thinking I'm very good at multitasking, which I'm not, you know, I would put the pasta on, uh, I'd run to my laptop, check a couple of emails or get distracted by the TV. And next thing you know, I've overcooked the pasta or, or something like that. Um, most things cook in a particular time. Um, sticking with the pasta example, if it's packet pasta, you know, it takes eight minutes or 10 minutes or 12. It actually varies depending on the pasta. It usually is written on the packet. So stick to it. You know, if it says eight minutes, but if you're like me and you're going to get forgetful and so on, like, you just use your phone. Mm -hmm. Like every phone is a timer now. And it's actually stopped me making mistakes in the kitchen. Um, if something is, is is supposed to be in the air fryers are good because, of course, air fryers have got their own timer built in. But if you're just using one of those, um, what are they called? Like benchtop electric oven type of things, uh, toaster oven. Yeah, toaster oven. Type of thing, yeah. Um, I mean, again, they have a dial and, and, and so on. But, you know, a number of times I've burnt something in a toaster oven because I got distracted. But when I set a timer, I just, I don't make those mistakes anymore. So for most of my life, I, I was never doing that. For the last five years, I oh, don't forget to put the timer on and I make far fewer mistakes. So mm -hmm. it's simple, but it's a winner. Yeah, I, I am guilty of, um, you know, not setting a timer, getting distracted, um, wandering off and doing something else and then something burning. Yeah. Um, I tend to just, I don't leave the kitchen if I'm cooking, I just don't leave. Otherwise I will forget. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
And then if I do leave the kitchen, I will usually set a timer because I know I'm leaving the kitchen. Yeah. But again, it does sort of come down to the science and the chemistry. So mm-hmm. you're talking about a chemical reaction. It's it's sensitive to what we call kinetics and thermodynamics. Mm-hmm. So without getting too deep into the terminology, kinetics is how fast a chemical reaction takes. Thermodynamic Thermodynamics is like the energy change associated mm-hmm. with a chemical reaction. So whether you're cooking meat, cooking pasta, boiling your vegetable, whatever it is, it's a chemical process, either a physical or a, or a chemical change or both, and that will be optimum at a particular time and a particular temperature. Okay, so yes, make sure you're using the right temperatures and make sure you're using a timer. It's all kinetics and thermodynamics. Yes. Yep. And next time someone asks you, you can just say it's kinetics and thermodynamics and Correct. everyone will think that you're very smart. Correct. And you are very smart. <laughs> So we've also got some questions from the audience. Um, So our first question is, how does salt impact the chemistry of food? And why is it considered a vital ingredient in cooking? Yep. So salt, um, as many of your listeners would know, is got a chemical name, sodium chloride. So it specifically comes down to the sodium. Sodium is, um, or it's, uh, its chemical entity is sodium plus. So it's a one plus iron. Um, it's the, the way, um, well, first of all, salt will interact with your taste buds and your, you know, your taste bud system and your olfactory system, but specifically your taste buds to impart that salty flavour. But it does also um, interact with the other molecules in the food and different foods, it will interact in completely different ways. Um, what's a good example? Uh so I, I don't actually eat cheese um, from dairy, um, but some people who like their nachos would be right into their melted cheese. If you just get normal cheese and you melt it and you get this kind of gooey texture, it actually goes clumpy quite quickly. Um, if you add, uh, some people use sodium citrate, but you can do it with sodium chloride as well, to the melted cheese just a little bit, the sodium ions replace the calcium ions in the um, in the in the in the dairy product, which is called casein, and it maintains that um, creamy, cheesy kind of texture in a way that if you hadn't added the sodium. So it's just an example oh. of how just adding sodium interacts with the other molecules to change the texture. So would it be enough to, if I'm making like a grilled cheese sandwich or a grilled toasty? Would it be enough to like you know have the cheese? put a little bit of salt on it and put the other toast bread on top and just grill it like that. Is that enough to mix the salt with the cheese mm. or do you need to make like a, a cheesy sauce that you then yeah. put in the toast? It worked better as a cheesy sauce because you've actually, you've mixed it together yeah. better. So there's a bit of a mechanical mixing mm-hmm. that probably needs to happen to get the optimum effect. Of course, the other thing with cheese, it's already got a pretty high That's... salt content. Mm. Uh, so some people prefer to do that in their cooking with sodium citrate. I think most people don't have sodium citrate sitting in their pantry. I um, don't think it, I have that. Right. It's, it's, it, when you say it like sodium citrate, it sounds like some sort of weird chemical. C- citrate is just what's in lemons and limes and, mm-hmm. and so on, just in the form of citric acid, not sodium citrate. But anyway... It was just an example of how just by adding sodium, you can get these different interactions with different molecules 
um, and change the texture and so on. And I guess if you were maybe doing a fondue or if you, you know, have a, a nacho business, yeah. you know, business where you're creating cheese sauce to put on top of your nachos, Absolutely. this would be critical information for you. Critical information. Yeah. <laughs> but other than that, um, the I'm other probably thing, not going to keep it in my pantry. No, absolutely. But just going back to the, your listener's question, I mean, mm-hmm. salt's a really important one to watch. I think everyone knows that. But too much salt is, is can genuinely lead to health, health risks. Um, but not enough salt and your food just doesn't taste good. Um, we do need a certain amount of salt to be healthy. Mm-hmm. So that's really important in, 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 in cell structure and cell health for our bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, going back to the taste buds, you know, why do we have taste buds? Why, why can't we just eat food and just be happy that we're sustained? Why does our body need to have these taste buds so that we enjoy food? Mm-hmm. There's probably good biological reasons for it. Our body needs a certain amount of salt. If we're eating food and we're not sensing there's enough salt, we will add salt or we will eat a more salty type of food so that we're getting enough sodium in our system. So, you know, our bodies are pretty clever. You know, it's like the bitter taste buds. It's usually a warning, a um, little bit of bitterness is good, um, but if we were to go back thousands and thousands of years and we're picking leaves off trees and doing all those sorts of things, um, if we taste something and it's extremely bitter, actually it's probably a sign that there's a toxic chemical because a lot of te- toxic chemicals are by nature very bitter and that's our body telling us, stop eating that thing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've heard that that's why kids really don't like bitter foods because their like bitterness overdrive is like really strong. Yeah. Um, and so for the poisoning aspect. Yeah, it's it's a self-defense mechanism. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Crying because of broccoli is a self-defense mechanism. Yeah. You know, I, I, I didn't eat broccoli as a kid. I thought it was terrible. Now it's one of my favorite vegetables. I think it was also how, well, for me, how my parents prepared it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's actually all our questions from the audience today. Um, So for our open mic section, that's where you get to talk about something that you're passionate about. It can be related to our topic, but it doesn't have to be. Did you have something in mind that you wanted to talk about? Uh, Yeah, well, when you said we'd do this earlier, I was like, oh, my God, what am I going to talk about? But, yeah, yeah, something that came up off off air when we were chatting is, um, yeah, one of my hobbies is is I'll – I'm a musician. Mm-hmm. Some people would say I'm not a musician because I'm a drummer and drummers are not musicians. But, um, yeah, I play drums, uh, have done uh, since I was a teenager. I've uh, been playing in bands my whole life. Probably in my last 10 years or so, you know, not just thanks to the pandemic but being very busy um, in my role, haven't done a huge amount. Um, but one of my bands, The Gems, uh, has just re- recorded a new single. Mm-hmm. So um, that's been pretty pretty exciting um, and probably going to play some live shows towards the end of the year. Oh, exciting. Um, just in case, um, if anyone is visiting in Melbourne, um, do you mind maybe just mentioning um, a few times and places people could find you or maybe if they wanted to find out maybe a website? Well, for, yeah, for the band, uh, so we called the Gems, mm-hmm. and uh, we we've been releasing stuff on and off over the years. Uh, I think there's a couple of things on Spotify, so if people want to check it out, we're called mm-hmm. the Gems, um, and we will 
probably play some shows uh, in the, I guess, uh, inner city uh, sticky carpet pubs of Melbourne around December. So there are no dates locked in yet. Okay. But we're eyeing off December um, for maybe uh, a few shows. So if people are into indie rock, you know, pop rock kind of stuff, if they don't mind sticky carpet pubs, <laughs> you know, we often play to crowds of, you know, 50 people. You know, we're not we're not packing out stadiums here. Um <laughs> But that's actually the kind of music I like playing, that small, intimate venue. Um, so, yeah, check okay. it out if that's if that's your jam. Great. Thank you. We'll um, put some links in the show notes so people can find you. And um, if they want to check you out, they can find where you're going to be playing. Cool. When you've released it, when you figured it out. Yep. Thank you. Um, and I think uh, I'm going to have a listen to it when you've gone. Maybe not when you're here because it um, might be a bit embarrassing or... <laughs> Uh, yeah, you can check it out later. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Thank you so much. And if people want to find you outside of your musical career, how can they find you? Yeah. Um, so I'm an academic at Monash University. So um, if you just Google my name, Chris Thompson, Monash, um, there's actually a lot of Chris Thompsons in the world. So if you just Google Chris Thompson, there's like musicians, other musicians, uh, actors, all sorts of people. So yeah, if you Google Chris Thompson, Monash, you'll very quickly find me. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not a big Twitter user, which of course isn't called Twitter anymore, even though I have a Twitter account. Uh, I'm a bit more prolific on things like LinkedIn. Okay. Uh, as I tend to use social media for, I guess, slightly more professional sort of um, conversations and interactions and those sorts of things. So please connect with me on LinkedIn um, and uh, yeah, love to keep in touch with anyone who wants to learn more about chemistry, cooking of chemistry and the chemistry of cooking get in touch great thank you i'll be emailing you all my questions about various different things sure <laughs> <laughs> thank you thanks you've been listening to on the house produced by the household management science labs a division of lmsl the life management science labs more episodes like this from across 10 life management perspectives can be found by searching lmsl on apple podcasts google podcasts youtube spotify and other podcasting apps available on your smart devices if you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel as it helps other people find it so we can grow and bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website at hm.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Gabriella Yastra. Thanks for tuning in.